Hey, what's happening? Thanks for joining us and listening to the latest edition of the GCSA podcast. I'm your host, Scott Hollister, the editor-in-chief of GCSAA's Golf Course Management Magazine. And this month's episode of the GCSA podcast is brought to you by the 2019 Golf Industry Show. We head to sunny San Diego on February 2nd through the 7th. Registration for that fine event is now open and you can get all the information by heading on over to golfindustryshow.com. We also want to make you aware of the GCSAA Disaster Relief Fund. If you're a GCSA member or you know of a member who has suffered personal loss because of a natural disaster, that member may be eligible for financial assistance and other resources through the fund. You can learn more by calling us at 800-472-7878. That's 800-472-7878. Or by emailing member help. That's mbrhelp at gcsa.org. You can also head on over to gcsa.org slash about gcsaa slash gcsaa disaster relief fund. There are hyphens between about gcsaa and gcsa disaster relief fund. And uh, that's a good uh, effort to help members in need uh, following some of the natural disasters that we've uh, suffered through recently. On this month's episode of the GCSA Podcast, we've got three great interviews for you. First off, we're going to talk a little bit about the FIRST Green uh, program, the Innovative Environmental and STEM Education Outreach Program that uses golf courses as, as learning labs. We will talk with Leanne Cooper, who is GCSA's Senior Manager of Chapter Services, as well as Steve Keeley, the Certified Golf Course Superintendent at Glendale Country Club in Bellevue, Washington, who has uh, been very active in the First Green program. We're also going to talk with our good friend Tim Krieger. Tim is the Executive Director of the Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association, and uh, their annual conference and trade show is coming up here, so we're going to talk with Tim a little bit about that event and what was a pretty trying year in 2018 for superintendents in that region. And then we'll wrap it up with another one of our favorites, Mr. Matt Schaefer. You may know Matt as the former superintendent at Marion Golf Club, uh, 17 years at Marion, the host of the 2013 U.S. Open. And so we'll have a kind of a wide-ranging conversation with Matt about what he's been up to since his retirement. He seems to be uh, busier now than he was when he was actually at Marion. And uh, talk a little bit about his career and uh, how, how he's seen the golf course management industry change in his time uh, in the industry. So great stuff. We thank you again for downloading, for subscribing, for listening, and we will take it away with a conversation about the first green. Okay, welcome back. And earlier this month, I had the opportunity to travel to Maryland and um, just north of uh, Baltimore, Westminster National Golf Course in Westminster, Maryland, and attend an event put on by the Mid-Atlantic Association of Golf Course Superintendents. It was a first green event for about 60 elementary school kids from Eldersburg Elementary in the Carroll County Public School System. They were our fifth graders there, and it was a I've been able and lucky enough to attend a handful of other First Green events, but there has been a lot of news uh, this month uh, and recently, actually, uh, related to GCSA and the First Green, and so we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that topic, so we're very excited to have a couple of folks join us today here at GCSA headquarters. 
We have Leanne Cooper. Leanne is the Senior Manager of Chapter Services here at GCSA, and she is helping to administer the First Green Program through GCSA here in Lawrence. And Leanne, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Thank you for having me. And on the phone line, we have uh, Mr. Steve Keeley, uh, Certified Golf Course Superintendent at Glendale Country Club in Bellevue, Washington. And Steve has a long history uh, with the First Green Program. Uh, it actually began in the Pacific Northwest, and Steve will go into that uh, just a little bit. Steve, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Steve, I'll, I'll start with you and just kind of uh, ask you to kind of walk our listeners through... Um, what the first green is, how you got started um, with the program. How many how many events, first green events, have you actually uh, been directly involved with over the years? Well, I've I've been uh, doing first green field trips for 19 years, and be, between all the ones that we've hosted here at Glendale, which are you know usually four or five a year, plus all the other uh, field trips I've been to uh, through GCSAA or helping others or or putting on field trip demonstration type field trips at other clubs, probably somewhere around a hundred and thirty or forty, something like that. Wow, that's a that's a that's a heck of an investment, and I know you're not alone in that part of the world in your uh, affinity uh, for this program. Maybe walk the listeners through how this program first started uh, up in your neck of the woods. How did you first get involved with First Green? I was brought into First Green by uh, two of our co-founders, Bill Meyer, who was the president of the Washington Junior Golf Association for a long time, and, and he was a, a member here at Glendale. And then uh, Jeff Gullickson was superintendent of Overlake Country Club, uh, which is just a, a private club adjacent to us. And those two uh, had been speaking for a long time about the possibility of getting together uh, with some educators and, and coming up with a program you know, to bring kids out to golf courses to teach, you know, pretty much environmental education. And so since they were both right, you know, right here and they were meeting at Glendale, I sort of just got, you know, built by association, got pulled into it in the beginning. Was there, did you have a personal uh, interest in um, in teaching and giving back and doing those things? What, what, uh other than no, the not at all. In in the beginning, I was I thought, oh man, this is you know, what am I gotten myself into? <laughs> and this really wasn't my bag. And you know, I'm not a teacher. I'm not into you know, I like kids and stuff. But I had I had yet to. Uh, I wasn't married yet. I didn't have any children. And but since you know, Bill was a member of the club, and Jeff was a good friend of mine. I thought, okay, I'll just pick this out. And I I didn't even. Uh, I didn't do my first field trip. That started in '98. Um, was when First Green got going. I didn't do my first field trip till 2000. And to tell you the truth, I was scared. I, oh no! <laughs> because my experience in in growing up, I went to Catholic school, so you know my my only experience with teachers were you know nuns that. <laughs> that were, uh, but it, ever since that first field trip, uh, I learned what a great time I had, and that was just the start of a a long uh, association with First Green. had a great time and and uh, realized how much fun it was. The chance for expansion there with some of the uh, uh, some of your old uh, teachers from Catholic school. We could bring <laughs> them out, right. get them involved in the program, I'm sure. But uh, Leanne, I'll, I'll ask you the, the next question. Uh, GCSAA has been involved with First Green 
for a long time to to some level or another um, past the the current ex, the expansion that we'll we'll talk about um, a, a little bit later. Maybe could you just kind of walk folks through how how has GCSA supported this program uh, in years past? Sure, just like you said, um, First Green. I'm sorry, GCSAA has been aware of First Green for many years, mostly through the efforts of our members, like Steve's our member. Um, and others who've told us what this program was about. I would say it was with the hiring of Dave Phipps. I think that was around in 2012. Um, Dave was a longtime superintendent in Oregon, was on the First Green Board of Directors, so was involved with the program. And then he became involved with GCSAA, or we hired him as our Northwest Regional Representative, our field staff up there. Well, Dave was did a wonderful job of spreading the news about First Green with uh, staff, with the, his fellow field staff. Um, and we made a real effort to meet with the First Green's um, executive director and with Steve and others. And we started the GIS seminar um, where we introduced other members to the field trips. And we uh, started talking about it at the chapter level uh, throughout the country and just became more involved. I would say within the last Definitely within the last four to five years, there's been an uptick in involvement of GCSAA. Steve, uh, f- from your perspective there in the Pacific Northwest, I, I know uh, that David uh, was super involved uh, in the program and supported that when he was a superintendent in the in the Portland area. How did, uh, from, from your view out there, was there, uh, how did his in, uh, hiring here at GCSA kind of change that dynamic and the relationship between the National Association uh, and, and the First Green program. Yeah, Dave was a, was a great advocate for First Green right from the beginning when he found out about the program. He had hosted several field trips at his club. Um, he had helped with uh, a couple field trips that we had done in the Portland area. And when he became one of the field reps at GCSAA, he knew that Association was the one that was, you know, that, that really needed to take ownership of this program because it was a, you know, a program um, started by superintendents and for superintendents, and it just that was going to be the way that you know that we were able to spread it was was through GCSAA. So he started, you know, spreading the word and 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 there at headquarters and trying to make everyone aware of it that he could, and and you know, obviously. That uh, all the time and effort he put into it is has helped us get to where we are today. From from your perspective, Steve. So in the past, uh, it was we officially uh, GCSA officially took over administration of the program. I believe in August, and but that was obviously not the start of the conversation between the first green and GCSA. Steve, from your perspective. Uh, was there a desire um, by the First Green, the board, the people that were involved in the program out there uh, to to expand this program and and kind of walk through how uh, the the formal connection between the association here in Lawrence and the First Green out there uh, came to be? Well, we we knew for a long time that that you know this program you know ideally would be administered through GCSAA so we could reach, um, you know, superintendents around the country and really make this thing, you know, really get rolling. Um, I think we've, it's probably been, you know, 10 years on and off at least. We've had conversations uh, with different people at GCSAA trying to make them aware of the program, but we knew that it was, it was, it was too, 
too localized. It was too much of a, you know, Northwest type deal that we had to get it out, you know, more on a on a national scene for people to take notice. So we did, um, we were really promoting it through, you know, I'm down the West Coast, and Karen Armstead, our executive director, and I had been to um, numerous chapter meetings and presented the program, you know, in Utah and in multiple locations in in uh, California, obviously in Oregon, Idaho. And so as it started to grow a little bit, and Leon's right, when we got in to be able to do the, uh, at, at GIS, being able to, you know, have a, a demonstration first green field trip there, then, you know, we started to get people from around the country that were getting involved, and it seemed like after that, things really started to roll. And then with Dave working on the inside, um, you know, it, we finally got a store. We are today. Le- Leanne, for, uh, that probably mirrors GCSA's experience and how this relationship came to be. We've obviously supported the program for, for quite a long time, but um, kind of walk us through the final steps to, that made this thing a, a, an actual happy marriage that, that it has, has become. And, uh, and, and maybe maybe tell the people a little bit more about the field trips at, at GIS. Those have been very popular uh, the last couple of years. But just uh, what goes on there, what they learn about during those uh, during those events. Oh sure, um, yeah, it's a really a wonderful opportunity for people who will be attending um, the golf industry show and taking seminars to have an introduction to First Green. And so you will learn about the program. Um, you'll learn about the resources available to you on uh, the First Green's website on how to host a, a field trip, what the lesson plans look like. You'll get great tips on um, connecting with schools if you don't already have a connection with a school, uh, about the structure and organization of, of, of First Green. But the best part of that field trip, of the seminar, is actually going off site. We take you out of the convention center. And we go to a local golf course um, where we will, uh, where that superintendent already has a connection with a school. We'll have, um, I think, in 2019 in San Diego, it's going to be a fifth grade class from a local elementary school that will be, um, they're able to walk over to the golf course. They're very close to that particular golf course. And they will uh, run through an actual first green field trip. Um, Steve Keeley will be there uh, with some additional volunteers to help, and we will show that what the learning labs look like and what a superintendent can expect. And last year was my first year of participating in the GIS seminar, and I have to tell you, two or three of the superintendents that I was palling around with during that um, field trip told me that they were excited and that they they. They saw it. They could see what First Green was all about and that they wanted to host a field trip. And sure enough, they have gone on to do that. So I really think it helps people when you can actually see and sort of feel what happens and you get the excitement of the kids and you see how easy First Green has made it for superintendents and chapters to get on board with the program. Um, it, it really lights a fire under people and they get excited. I saw it firsthand just mm-hmm. a few weeks ago uh, in Maryland there were teachers involved. The superintendent of schools attended. Uh, there were parent chaperones there. And that was maybe the, as, as much as the kids were, certain kids you could see were really, really connecting with the information and asking good questions. And we really were, were kind of fascinated by this connection between golf and, and STEM uh, education. And 
But as interesting as that was, I thought the parents' reaction, some of the chaperones, each group had a couple of parents who had volunteered to attend. And at first you could see them just standing in the back, checking their phones, doing doing whatever. But as the day and the morning progressed, they really got engaged and they, they asked the superintendents who were involved. There was about a dozen volunteers from the Mid-Atlantic chapter who helped out. And they were asking really interesting questions about water use, about soil, uh, about uh, inputs that are being used. They had pulled some soil samples and had some um, found some, at least in that part of the country, the annual bluegrass weevil, which is an issue in particular to that area. But uh, that was very, very interesting. And Steve, I'm, I'm sure that if, if with the many you've done, you've probably seen that kind of reaction, not just from the kids, but also maybe some of the parents and teachers that have been involved and maybe their greater understanding of of golf and what superintendents do after those events. Um, in 19 years of, of doing field trips, I've never had a parent, administrator, teacher, anybody who wasn't really impressed with the program. And I, In fact, I think well, there's been uh, numerous times where we had both teachers and parents who were pretty skeptical when they... When they you know, just about the field trip in general, but by the time they left, you know, they come out and say, wow, I never knew that these kind of things happened on golf courses and that you guys were this, you know, greatest stewards of the land and and everything you do to protect water quality and, you know, the wildlife habitats that are on golf courses, they just never, you know, really been... And see, yeah, sure, a lot of people play golf, but they've never really seen the other side of, you know, what we do at a, at a you know, first green field trip. Leanne, so far since GCSA has taken over administration, what are what are some of the questions that you're getting from superintendents who may have not had the opportunity to do the GIS uh, education, but are interested in that? What are they What are they asking you about, and and how much traction do you feel that the program is gaining uh, nationwide right now? Yeah, great question. I it, we we get two different types of questions. Some are very practical and kind of you know. Am I going to have to come up with what we talk to the kids about? Um, do I really have to be the science or math expert? You know, how easy is this going to be for me, in other words? And I would say that then I direct them to the website, and we have so many resources available for them there. Um, I direct them to their field staff or can answer questions, and we're, we're here to support them. And then the other set of questions we get are from people who haven't had the opportunity to, to see a field trip. So sometimes they're having a hard time picturing it and, and what, what it all entails and what what that's going to mean for their golf course on that day? Is it going to impact play? Um, you know, what are some of the steps or things that they need to do to help prepare their members or um, their their GM, that sort of thing? And then I direct them, we have some really wonderful videos that were shot by the First Green staff um, pre-merger that still talk to, you can actually see the First Green field trip. Uh, they walk you through it. It r- really helps maybe settle down some nerves and just sort of, you know, I talked through a lot of this with them and um, also encouraged them to get with their field staff representatives. But one thing that we have uh, for 2019, we are going to want to do more train-the-trainer workshops. And that's where I'm going to ask your listeners that might be chapter leaders um, to get with me because we're really going to want to access our chapters here to help host these train-the-trainer workshops to really help. It's it's once people see it, then they understand that they can get involved and they generally want to. So, 
yeah, there's uh, there's plenty of information. I, I'll direct folks if, that they have initial questions about the program and they want to learn a little bit more to head to thefirstgreen.org. That is the newly launched website for the First Green. There's a ton of great information on there. There's contact information for. I believe Leanne yep. and all of our field, field staff, staff representatives in our various regions around the country. So if you know your field staff rep, you'd like to reach out to them. They're happy to help. Leanne is also happy to help. So I will uh, uh, preempt the ending of the of our segment <laughs> where I was going to mention this because it's a good segue. Again, that's the firstgreen.org. Uh, Steve, I, I'll ask you kind of one final question here. And uh, I'm curious the, the reaction t- uh, among folks like yourself Jeff Gulliskin, uh, Karen Armstead, who you uh, mentioned earlier, the executive director, uh, former executive director of the uh, First Green. Um, when you look at the program now, how gratifying is it for you guys? Is it uh, what, just what's your reaction when you see now how the program is beginning to blossom and reach people in really all corners of the country? Well, it's fantastic for all of us that were worth, were with First Green for a long time to see it, it growing, to see GCSA, uh, you know, everybody, the field staff, Leon, everybody uh, involved with First Green at GCSA just embrace the program because we've, we've known for a long time, um, you know, what, what a powerful program it was, how, um, you know, if, if we could just get someone behind it, uh, to help help spread it uh, for us, that you know it would really take off and go, and it uh, you know from golf's perspective, I think the the biggest benefit is we get to you know educate a generation of of kids and teachers and their parents that golf is good for the environment and it's good for the community, and uh, it's just it's just great to like I said for for everyone all of us from the first green board who worked for years to try to get it to where it is today just to see it um, succeed. Well, you guys are to be commended out there because it is a really uh, outstanding program. And I found myself, I'm supposed to be a journalist in covering these events, but I found myself towards the end kind of stepping in and helping out some of these kids with – that we're going through these programs at the event I just went to in Maryland. And so it, it was, it was a ball for me to, to get to do that. Um, and I know all the volunteers from that chapter were really, um, really rewarded by, by the, the opportunity to do that. Have you, in, in having done 140, Steve, have you seen, uh, have you had uh, golfers walk up to you and go, Hey, I went about 10 years ago. I, uh, did one of your first green field trips. Have you had any of those experiences over the years? Sure, we had kids that had, had come through the program that actually went on. Uh, I had uh, several that went on to become um, landscape architects. Uh, several kids that went on to uh, work in in golf and golf maintenance, uh, golf course maintenance, excuse me, and uh, other other areas of the green industry that I have seen since then. Said, "Hey, do you remember me? Yeah, I went to Sammamish High School, or I went to." You know, one of the grade schools, elementary schools that we had worked with. So, yeah, it's pretty cool to see kids run into them down the road and say, hey, or have them say that, yeah, that, that had a big impact on, uh, you know, choosing what career path I was going to take. Well, that's, that, that's great. It's, it's a great Grow the Game uh, initiative, yeah. too. And even if you're, yeah, you're growing it among the, the students who are there. And I think, as I'm, we talked a little bit earlier, I think you're maybe growing the game a little bit about uh, among some of the parents and teachers and instructors uh, who've, who've uh, been involved and are seeing the you benefit. Know, one, 
one more thing. Even if these, these kids who, who are come out in you know elementary, middle school, come to a field trip, even if they never pick up a golf club and play the game, they're going to remember that positive learning experience that they have at the golf course, and they're going to you know grow up to, to live in the community. Because sometimes golf gets a bad rap for you know, being a detriment to the environment and stuff, but those kids that have actually been out and been on one of those trips know that that's not the case. And so whether they play golf or not, I think it's, it's great for them to have the experience that's, that's a great point. And Leanne, I'll give you the last word. Where can people, we've mentioned it earlier, but where can people get more information on the first green? Absolutely. They can reach out to that website. Um, it's www.thefirstgreen.org, or they can give me a call, 1-800-472-7878. I'm Leanne Cooper, and I'm here to help them get their first green started. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you both for taking some time to talk about this great program. Would encourage anyone to uh, uh, to explore hosting one at, at your own golf course, or if you're going to be in San Diego uh, for the Golf Industry Show in February, please look into that field trip. It's a, it's a great event and really a great introduction to the program. So, Leanne Cooper, thank you so much. Thank you. And Steve, appreciate it. Always great talking to you, and hope everything's good in the Northwest. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, right. Leanne, for having me. Thank you, guys. My thanks again to Leanne Cooper and Steve Keeley for that great conversation on the First Green program. I really highly encourage you to check that out. And I want to take a second now to talk to you about the Golf Industry Show. I mean, in, in the month of February, for most of us, who doesn't like the prospect of a trip to sunny Southern California and a chance to spend a week in a place like San Diego? And now think about that and think about getting world-class agronomic, business, communications, education. Think about the best and most complete exhibit space and trade show in the entire golf course management industry. And as you're thinking about that, I want you to think about the 2019 Golf Industry Show coming to San Diego February 2nd through the 7th. Uh, Registration for that event is open right now. You can go to golfindustryshow.com. That's golfindustryshow.com. Right now, you can get all the information on how to sign up for the world-class education that's available there. You can get housing information, travel information. You can find information about that host city, San Diego, which among GCSAA members is our most popular. It's a great place to go, and I want to see you in Southern California so we can talk about all of our poor friends who are back in colder climates in early February instead of improving themselves and enjoying all that San Diego and the Golf Industry Show has to offer. So once again, the 2019 Golf Industry Show, San Diego, February 2nd through the 7th. You're going to want to go to golfindustryshow.com for all the details. Registration is now open, and I want to see you there. So up next is a conversation, a great chat that I had with Tim Krieger where we talked about uh, not only the upcoming Carolinas GCSA Conference and Trade Show in Myrtle Beach, but also what was a pretty uh, trying year for superintendents in the Carolinas. Some great stuff with our good friend, Mr. Tim Krieger. Well, we're at uh, November, and we are heading into, uh, around the country, what is uh, often uh, uh, thought of as regional trade show season in the uh, golf course management industry. And if there is a granddaddy of them all, it is in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and the Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association Conference and Trade Show. It is coming up 
here in uh, November, and we are going to talk a little bit about that and some other goings on in that part of the golf world with our good friend, Mr. Tim Krieger. Tim is the executive director of the Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association. He's been there 11 years now, Tim, is that right? Uh, by the time this airs, it will be eleven years. You're just yeah, we're we're just nearing that uh, nearing that anniversary uh, again. Tim, executive director with the Carolinas GCSA, is a, a a proud Clemson grad. I know. Uh, did some time with the South Carolina Junior Golf Foundation in a couple of roles there before coming to the uh, Carolinas chapter. And Tim, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Uh, Scott, I appreciate you having us. Uh, before we get to the the trade show, it has been an a, a eventful couple of years. Uh, I know personally for you and also uh, for superintendents in, in your part of the world. So I want to spend some time uh, talking about that. I, um, you might get, uh, uh, I'm sure at this point, uh, people asking you about this first part. Uh, um, Make it a little, make it a little t- uh, tiring for you. But I think there's some genuine concern, and you had a bit of a trying year back in 2017, and you and I had a chance last year at Myrtle in Myrtle Beach at the event to talk a little bit about this. But uh, you you went through some personal health challenges, um, and uh, unfortunately had an accident later on. Maybe just tell folks kind of what you went through, and I think people kind of want to know how you're doing and how you're how you're bouncing back from all of that. Um, okay, well, we'll be brief as <laughs> focus is always on the members, but as sometimes we're, we're challenged to be the face as, as Rhett goes through, um, there are some personal questions. So yeah, um, the day prior to our North-South event last year was playing golf with some board members and had a heart attack. Um, made it to the hospital here in Charlotte in time, got a couple stints put in, um, recovery process after that, diet exercise, um, regimen of medicine change, um, Everything looks good on the follow-up. Uh, I've got with a good cardiologist here in town and, and doctor, and so moving right along. And then about three months after uh, the heart attack, was out with one of our members doing a little scouting for some deer hunting, I dare say, and we had an ATV accident and broke the leg, ankle, and foot. So um, anyways, yeah, it was a challenging year last year, to say the least, but... We're back up and good. We made it through the Kiowa Marathon, half marathon last December, and hope to do it again here the first week of December coming up. That's that's awesome, and I, and I think you hear people talk about events like that, and I know that I, again, we, you and I spoke at length uh, during the uh, show last year uh, in Myrtle Beach when I was out there. Um, do, do you feel like you have a, a different... Uh, outlook on on the work that you're doing for superintendents in your region and really on your life as a whole because of the kind of things and, and challenges you had to go through during that year. Yeah, uh, Scott, that's a that's a you know that's a tough one to answer. Uh, as you can imagine, anybody who goes through major life trauma, um, your perspective maybe changes a little bit. And I actually just found myself saying to somebody last week. Um, that through everything that I've had to go through, maybe maybe the reason I'm here is to share that with our guys who work so hard and forget about themselves all the time. And as much attention that they put into a golf course, they don't put into themselves and their inputs. And so if I'm a living example that can share that with somebody without harping on them or telling them they're doing something wrong, but get them to go get checked out before an incident, then maybe that's why we're here. And if we can help even just one member, then, you know, serves a purpose greater than 
than any mission statement. That's for sure. That's that's ab- that's absolutely right. And and I boy, that applies to to folks practicing their their trade in California and Texas, all over the country, not just in the Carolinas. And I think that's something that we all probably uh, uh, it's it's a good a good lesson to kind of step back and take a take a look at yourself as much as 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 we all put into to this great industry. So I I'll transition that, and I appreciate you giving me a little leeway there to talk about that because I know that's uh, not the easiest thing f- uh, for you to do. Um, and your focus is on your members and. In saying that, as you as you rolled out of those personal challenges in 2017 and began 2018, uh, your members and superintendents and those in golf course management in the Carolinas, uh, 2018 has has just been a has been a a, a rough one uh, for a couple of different uh, a couple of different reasons. Uh, why don't you start off and tell us the pretty significant winter kill issues uh, in the Carolinas. Uh, for the folks who maybe aren't quite aware exactly what uh, your members were dealing with uh, as you began to transition out of winter and into the springtime, just kind of a uh, what, what were you facing? Where were the main challenges uh, that superintendents were facing? And, and how did they kind of come out of those challenges as they began to head into summer? Well, I can tell you it started for us as an association to tie the two together last fall, the tail end of the last hurricane um, caused us to cancel our fall meeting. So then we went through conference and show. Um, and then in January, got snowed out of a meeting. Um, and then in March, and when that was supposed to be down in Hilton Head, and then because we had the most snowfall on record along the coast in who knows how many years, 30 plus. And then into February or into March, we were supposed to have our Southeast Regional meeting with the USGA in Winston-Salem, and the ice storm hit through there. And so three association meetings in a row canceled due to weather. Um, so that stretch of, of weather was was absolutely crazy because as the winter took forever to take off, we had 70s and 80s in February, early blooms across everything to the point where, I mean, we're worried about our peach crop and things of that nature in our state. Wow. Because there's going to be another frost. And as you and I all know, once you've bloomed on certain plants and then the frost kills them, that's it. Same thing, in my opinion, and I'm not an agronomic guy, you're looking at with this early onset of Bermuda coming out. Sure. And so you've got snowfall. You can have a whole conversation about covers, not covers, what guys use to save themselves, pine straw, icing, all the different methods. So you had some courses that were even prepped that covered, double covered, even went as far as to insulate with pine straw on top of covers, that what we found were that the newly planted grasses late last season struggled the most. And we saw the most prevalent with either renovations or a couple of new courses where even 18 holes that were no matter what seminar you took from the USGA or from anybody around the country, you followed, guys followed it to a T and lost every one of their greens. Wow. And so the crazy thing this year that we found is that it seems like it's, I think it's every seven years, if I'm not mistaken, there's a rash of winter kill, it seems like. This is the first year I can recall it being on greens primarily. There were some impacted areas and fairways and tees uh, and even some roughs. But primarily, this seemed to impact the greens. Um, and so, how, how do you come out of that? Well, depends on where you are and the challenges that you've you've had. There were some areas where revenue obviously takes precedent, and there may have been some 
quote, agronomic adjustments made right. by non-superintendents that <laughs> right. maybe weren't standard protocol. Like maybe you were told to take a tarp up when there was still snow on top of it to get 20 rounds in that day. So how important is your grass at that point in time in January versus coming out in April? So you get situations like that where it's it's tough, and it was pretty rampant um, across the board. And it didn't, some of them, it didn't matter if it was overseed or colorants or whatever. And, and the end result, unfortunately, were we had a number of folks who were let go. Um, so the, the job board in the Carolinas has been more active in major positions this past year than I've seen in the in the eleven that I've been here. That's crazy, and that's it, that's the unfortunate toll that that events like this take. And you really explained well that give and take between the business side of the game and the agronomic side of the game, and and who ultimately wins those battles. And as I guess it's disappointing for folks like you and I in our in our business to see our our members, the members of the Carolinas chapter. The members of GCSAA uh, kind of be the ones who have to, to suffer through that. Uh, unfortunately, Mother Nature really hasn't let up on on your part of the world. Um, we are, as we record this, we are in kind of mid to late uh, October. Uh, you guys are just on the tail end of dealing not not just with one hurricane, but actually the remnants uh, of two. So hurricanes uh, Florence and, and and Michael. So. Uh, Florence was the one that directly impacted the Carolinas. It came, it it made landfall there. What what were the impacts there? How have your uh, your members in those golf courses most effective? How have they been recovering from from what Florence dealt you guys? Well, let's transition from winter kill into Florence with talking about the summer that. Uh, how have I heard it said? It could have been one of the best summers for growing bent grass ever. Wow. Which means our highs didn't get very high. Um, you had rain when you needed it early, and then it was dry when you needed it when you could control the water. All the way up until the end of August and into September, which then it flipped around. Everybody usually with bent grass at that point says, we're looking forward to punching holes and kind of taking it easy. Well, I've heard a couple guys make some comments that they've had more damage after punching holes this year because the conditions were at that point in time hotter, more humid, more disease-prone, et cetera, which then led us into these typical hurricane seasons. So you've got all these recovery efforts going on. You've got guys trying to grow in Bermuda, having a great bent grass summer. And then all of a sudden, with the rain that we've had, North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, every county across the state was at adequate or above uh, drought tolerance levels. It's remarkable. Nobody in the state of drought. And then Florence rolls in. And Florence dumps, depending on where you are, three to 45 inches of rain over a week. So, like Myrtle Beach was way south. Didn't get a lot of the storm, per se, unlike Wilmington and Wrightsville Beach and everything that everybody heard about. They took seven inches on the front end, and then 10 days later, they took another seven inches on the back end. So the the challenge with that is all the water that's sitting between the two states and all the different river basins that's dumping out. And so, like Wilmington, for instance, we get a call from a gentleman at a golf course there the day after the hurricane that says, my owner, manager just called, there's at least 200, maybe 300 trees down. We're going to need some help. We only have a crew of such and such size. 
but I'm in Winston-Salem, and I'm not going to be able to get back on the island until Friday. And this is on Monday. Wow. To even assess the situation because I-40 was still underwater seven, eight, nine days later, sections of it, as well as I-95, due to the the cresting, the river swell, sure. if you will. Um, and so that's when you start hearing stories, like I've used it before on I-40 in particular, when the rain finally, or the river finally, subsided enough to allow traffic to go back through. They had a fire truck out there with a fire hose taking care of all the fish, the dead fish that are laying on the road. Oh, my God. I mean, it's a scene unlike anything you've ever seen with this massive fire hose running, you know, 10, 15-pound fish off the interstate. That's, I mean, I just, yeah, that's, that's, that's unheard of. And I, I think at times like those, superintendents have, they're, they're, they're of two, of two minds. Obviously they're worried about their golf course and getting that back up and running, but there's all the personal concerns too. And so I, I, you know, I, as a, as a lifelong Kansan, I mean, we have our own cross to bear when it comes to severe weather and tornadoes and, and things like that. But uh, I can't imagine that the stress that it puts on, um, uh, someone like a golf course superintendent in your part of the world who's not only worried about uh, his golf course, but getting his, his family, uh, making sure his home is, is, is prepared, his family is safe, and things like that. It sounds like your members don't hesitate to reach out to you and, and to your team there in, in times of need for, for support. Uh, what was your, just your general, as those calls begin to came to come in, is your is your general thought just, hey, let's let's help where we can, let's coordinate where we can, let's support uh, where we can. How do you how do you approach that in times of crisis like that with your members? Well, we put together a little, I don't know, I dare say, an SOP um, a couple years ago, and with this year we modified it on the front end of the storm in terms of evacuees, and so we use electronic mediums, just like you all, whether it's the email or the social media in particular, to say, okay, if you're evacuating and you have to go west, let us know if you don't have a place to stay. And at the same point in time, we're gathering a list of members that have received another email asking if they have room. And I mean, we had 20 or 30, I'd say closer to 28, if I'm not mistaken, volunteers from board members to members to vendors to staff that said, hey, you've got X number of bedrooms available, um, you know, and let us know. As you move through the storm, and then it's coordination of the labor, the food, and the equipment. And so if a course calls that says, hey, we need people, then hopefully we've got a database or a list of people who have called that said, hey, I can help. Vendors want to help but can't be there, so they send money per se, and we can provide meals for those days when the heavy cleanup's going on. And then on the equipment side, it's just trying to pair up guys that chippers, dump trailers, things of that nature that they may not have that they need. Um, i tell you one of the most amazing things that I heard through it all is a superintendent took a family in, a vendor actually, um, who had a house that was destroyed in the first storm. And, you know, they don't want anybody to hear about this story, but, and I won't mention any names, but that human spirit is, is absolutely phenomenal when it comes to these times. And, I mean, they just, hey, we've got a full house, we've got a full family, but come on and stay with us until you can figure out your situation. Could be a day, could be three weeks. And when you get this follow-up flooding that comes back after the storm a week later, that floods cities that weren't even in the path of the storm, you can see the significance of it. And... If there's one thing that I wish superintendents would would do is not be so stubborn in these times. And when they need help, 
to let people know. And so it's our message is to try and promote the disaster relief fund that you guys have. We have a similar one as well. Um, chapters around the country, New Jersey and Texas, have sent funds to us, um, which creates an amazing pay-it-forward fo- program that we learned uh, with the storms in Texas a couple years ago. You know, we did the same thing right. here and with West Virginia. And so it's just amazing how the brotherhood that we talk about all the time of superintendents, it truly goes um, and raises itself up to uh, to an elevated platform that I don't think any of us were ready to to have to comprehend is is going to work every day, if you will. Right. Yeah. It that's a great uh, that's a great part of our business, and uh, your your superintendents are stubborn sometimes, um, but people want to help. They want to support each other, and uh, great examples uh, of that. Uh, just just before we transition to the show. Um, when Michael rolls through a few weeks later, that was that that was largely a rain event uh, for you guys. Were there areas that that took a, a double blow from both storms, or did the, did those areas impacted move around in the region any? I think what we saw was this prolonged uh, river flooding, if you will, especially towards the south side of South Carolina, where it it had taken all the water that had come from. Western North Carolina and the western side of South Carolina and even Georgia and dumps it out all the way from Savannah up to Wilmington. And I think what you had there was, again, some of these smaller cities along the way that weren't impacted as bad at the beginning. Right. But then had, I mean, the, the best example I can give is Georgetown, where they're after the fact. They only maybe took a half inch of rain in either storm, but they're told to sandbag like 10, 12 days later, certain areas because this water is just still coming in. Right. Um, I think the second one, what we realized is how many of our friends and family we have that have roots down in Florida. And again, we, we had a member who was down in Mexico uh, Beach. Oh, yeah. Actually, just last week. And I said, hey, you know, looking forward to seeing you here this weekend. We had an event. And he said, man, my mom and my sister's house are gone down at the foundations gone they're not even here our beach house our family beach house we've been going to for 50 years it's gone holy cow he said what you see on fox news is exactly i'm standing right here right now look at the tv i'll wave to you there's nothing here and so you know in certain regards maybe you could say we were lucky um we had some damage along the coast in particular inland flooding um hell the floods came all the way into uh charlotte yeah. And like Carmel Country Club, for instance, lost a green and six bunkers during just flooding from this storm. Um, and so that's that's a pretty wide berth from the storm to be as far in as Charlotte all the way to Wilmington. Yeah, it's uh, if, if anyone knows what Mother Nature can do, it's a golf course superintendent. And But boy, it's uh, sometimes events like this that just remind us the, the, the true power and, 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 and what she can what she can bring. But uh, having said all that, as we head into uh, as we head into November, I'm certain that you, your staff there, um, members throughout the Carolinas are looking forward to getting to Myrtle Beach, just as a sense of uh, maybe to kind of renew those renew those relationships, uh, renew that brotherhood that you talked about. Um, what are you hearing from your members and uh, the level of excitement about uh, another edition of this conference and trade show? Well. Uh... Candidly, there's a lot of excitement because guys are just ready to take a break. Um, 
like we've just described, it's been a long, hard summer. And so um, the chance to get away, see your friends, share stories with challenges that have gone on through the year, um, all those those different reasons, if you will, why they come down there, It's it's been pretty exciting. Um, it's been a little tardy, if you will, uh, just due to guys being at work. Right. We know that. Um, you know, anybody that's been impacted by the storms, you know, we'll take care of registration fees that are late and all those kind of things. And I think that's the neat thing about the position that we're in is being a small staff and knowing almost everybody that picks up the phone and calls here. When they register, we're able to, to make concessions where need be for those folks that have been challenged. So um, I think it just sets the tone for everybody to come down to the beach and be part of a big family. Yeah, I'm sure there's just an amazing level of excitement. Just to kind of give you, to give the listeners a, a bit of the details who uh, maybe aren't uh, too familiar with the uh, the uh, Carolinas Conference and Trade Show, we're looking November 12th through the 14th, lovely Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, Monday, uh, you, you host a golf tournament for your members. There's a sporting clay event. There's an afternoon of uh, education. Then as you move into Tuesday, full day of education for attendees, the uh, student chapter turf bowl, always a highlight, and then the opening of the trade show that afternoon. And then on Wednesday, you have your uh, your general education session where you're going to present your uh, Distinguished Service Award to uh, Burt McCarty, PhD from Clemson. We'll talk a little bit about him here in a second. Uh, your annual meeting, the trade show, continues that day and closes that day. Um, I've been lucky enough to go... Gosh, I'm not sure how many times. I've probably been six, seven, eight times over the years uh, to the event. It, it's really an awesome event. It's a great chance, uh, at least for me personally, to connect with with superintendents in the area, see folks like yourself, my good friend Trent Bouts, who does such a great job for you guys in terms of communications and the magazine. And uh, for anyone out there listening, looking for more information, who'd like to maybe uh, even take a little trip to Myrtle uh, here in November, head on over to Carolina's GCSA. Excuse me, let me read that slower. Carolinasgcsa.org slash education hyphen conference slash conference and show. There are hyphens between conference and show. If you really just head on over to Carolinasgcsa.org, you'll get all the information. It's a great event. And you know, for you personally, Tim, what is this? This has to be a highlight of the year for you. Obviously, it's a ton of work. I know what we go through on our end with the uh, golf industry show, and this is a uh, uh, certainly uh, right on right up there with that. What is what does this event mean for you uh, in your role as the executive director of the chapter? Um, well, it's, put it in economic terms, it's our cash cow. Um, it's what drives the association. And when I go around and I talk around the two states, and I talk about the importance of conference and show. I just I put it back to the members and say, if you enjoy the services that you receive from the association, if you enjoy being able to pick up the phone five days a week for the most part, except for the summer when we're closed on Fridays, um, and knowing who's on the other end of the phone um, and not getting an answering service, if you enjoy having lobbyists represent you in both states for advocacy purposes and all these other benefits that come with it, you've got to attend the conference and show. That's what allows us to have a staff. And when you have a full-time staff year-round, then you can add more and more benefits. And so we joke it's the vicious cycle that conference and show drives. Um, so for me personally, it's very important. Um, it's, it's our marriage time. It's half of our members are vendors. The other half are superintendents, assistants, 
etc. Right. And we have to find that perfect way to utilize the resources that are available for the vendors who are willing to invest in us to bring them more potential customers to one place than they could invest in individual salespeople throughout the year. And so we have to capitalize on that. And that's what we do. And we create new and unique ways to get people involved. So we've got four or five new partners this year that we didn't have last year. And, you know, it's a great branding opportunity for them. And the flip side is we say, well, we're going to have 1,300 seats of education sold. We'll have 1,000 qualified buyers for you and close to eight hours of trade show floor space that, you know, we make an incentive to drive people in there through the 27-hole challenge and cash prizes and fun stuff given away to try and incentivize that traffic and not just go to the beach and enjoy the beach and play golf all the time. You know, we're, we're here to continue our education, and I think guys get that. So by having education spread out, like you noted, on Monday afternoon as well, um, heck, we'll play 300, 350 in the golf tournament on Monday, 50 at Sporting Clays, and then, as you noted, still 1,300 education seats until the trade show opens on Tuesday afternoon. Um, and then on Wednesday, it's a great opportunity to showcase some of our speakers for the entire crowd in the morning and, and recognize some of our distinguished service folks, like you would mentioned with Dr. McCarty this year. Yeah, I think people nationwide probably know Dr. McCarty. Um, I've had the good fortune of working with him on a number of occasions uh, through the magazine. Uh, what? But I know that your members have a, a special affinity uh, for the guys uh, like like Dr. McCarty at, at Clemson, the guys at NC State, and the work that they do uh, to, to study the particular challenges that superintendents face in, in the Carolinas. What, is, what, is, what has Dr. McCarty's career kind of meant for the turf grass industry, the golf course management industry in the Carolinas? Wow. Um, yeah, big question. I'm, I'm glad I put that right on your shoulder, so enjoy that one. <laughs> well, it is, and, and, and I'm limited. I'm ignorant as much as I hate to admit it when it comes to his career. Um, I'm the guy who can proudly say I went to Clemson, graduated there, and didn't know it was an ag school until I came to work for the Turf Association. So um, that's how blind some of us as students potentially could be to the expertise that is offered, particularly in our field or in any of them at the two schools. And I think our summation is we're blessed to have Clemson and NC State here. Between the two schools, between the last four decades, there have been some of the best pathologists don't let me leave off any of the rest of them, entomologists, all the science guys that we need to perform our job, we're lucky to have right here at home, which is kind of, it was Bert's comment when I first got hired, when we talked about what can we as an association do to be helping you all more, and he's the one who identified the fact that the state funding was being cut for um, a lot of your ag schools, uh, your land-grant universities, and they were working off of a 25% of what they used to get just 10 years prior to that. And so that's kind of the catalyst for us to come up with rounds for research was, you know, he said, we're going to need a million dollars a year. To which I was like, well, we'll do our best, Bert. Maybe we can do 100000 And that was always kind of the goal with rounds for research. And, you know, I love the fact that we challenge each other. And at the same point in time, we're able to reward each other and, there's nothing more rewarding than us as a chapter to be able to take funds that don't come out of our operations, but from an auction and give, you know, I think we're at 369,000 between Clemson and NC state right now. So it's been phenomenal. And to sum up what he's done for the turf industry, 
I'd just go back and do some quick math and say if it's a $2.3 billion industry annually in the last 11 years, that's $20 billion. Some of the problems that have been solved from our two schools, I'd say it's probably worth $4 billion worth of income. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great way to put it. And you brought up a, a great program, Rounds for Research, that the Carolinas was on the uh, forefront of. It's a, a subject for uh, another podcast as we uh, as we'll roll into a Rounds for Research season in, in 2019. But for our listeners, again, uh, the Carolinas Conference and Trade Show is November 12th through the 14th in Myrtle Beach. South Carolina. You can get all the information you need on that by heading on over to carolinasgcsa.org. Mr. Krieger, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you, my man. And I look forward to uh, um, spending a few days in Myrtle Beach myself this year and catching up with you further there. And so thanks for your time today, my man. Well, I appreciate you having us. And we look forward to seeing anybody who wants to come to the beach. I think we had 17 states and three countries represented last year. So don't be afraid to come see some new friends. All right. Thanks again, Tim. Thanks, sir. My thanks once again to Tim Krieger with the Carolinas GCSA. Enjoyed our conversation and looking forward to my visit to Myrtle Beach. Speaking of Myrtle Beach, uh, last year uh, when I was there for the conference and show, the Carolinas Conference and Trade Show, I had an opportunity to head down to Hilton Head and actually Defusky Island and uh, check out some of the uh, impacts that they suffered from Hurricane Matthew, which uh, left a lot of tree damage. Um, thankfully, no injuries, no structural damage. But for this Kansan, it was a, a humbling experience to see the power of, of hurricanes and, and what they can do to golf courses. And because of that, because of the uh, recent storms that a lot of guys have been through, Hurricanes Michael and Florence, it's a great time to remind you about the GCSA Disaster Relief Fund. If you are an association member or you know of an association member who has suffered personal loss because of a natural disaster, whether that's a hurricane, a wildfire, uh, flooding like uh, some golf courses I know in the upper Midwest suffered this year, you may be eligible for financial assistance or other resources through this fund. If that's the case, please reach out for help. We are here to help. You're going to want to call 800-472-7878. Again, that's 800-472-7878. Or you can email at memberhelp at gcsa.org. That is mbrhelp at gcsa.org. And we'll be happy to kind of walk you through the process of applying for those funds. You can always get uh, much, much more information by heading over to gcsaa.org and searching Disaster Relief Fund. All kinds of information there, uh, not only about applying for funds, but also about contributing to that fund if you'd like to help your fellow golf course management uh, industry professional going through a tough time right now. So once again, that's the GCSA Disaster Relief Fund. Heading into a conversation now with Mr. Matt Schaefer, the longtime superintendent at Marion Golf Club. This is a good one. One of my favorites, one of the smartest guys in the industry, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Matt Schaefer. Well, we're honored today to be joined by one of my favorite guys in the industry, Mr. Matt Schaefer. Matt is a uh, 33-year GCSA member, and most of you out there might know him as a longtime superintendent at Marion Golf Club in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, the uh, Philadelphia area. Uh, Matt is now enjoying retirement. We'll get into that uh, just a little bit. But he's uh, Matt, uh, for those of you who don't know, Matt's a Penn State grad, 1974, proud 
Penn State grad. His first job was at uh, Media Heights Golf Club in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But he uh, did a stint at Augusta National under Mr. Paul R. Latshaw, uh, a previous Old Tom Morris Award winner. We'll talk a little bit uh, about Mr. Latshaw and his influence on Matt. Uh, spent some time at Woodcrest Country Club in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, also the Country Club of Cleveland in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, before he headed over to Marion in 2002 and uh, hosted uh, Walker Cup in 2002, the U.S. Amateur in 2005, and famously the 2013 U.S. Open won uh, by... Uh, who won that, uh, Matt? I'm blanking on the name. Justin Rose. Justin Rose, of course he did. And um, uh, another part of Matt's thing that we'll get into is he's has uh, been really forward thinking in terms of environmental management of golf cl- uh, golf courses. He is the 2012 uh, ELGA winner in the national private uh, category. And for those of you not in the know, ELGA stands for the Environmental Leaders in Golf Awards. Matt, we've had the uh, good fortune of knowing each other since I've been in the business um, some 20 years ago. You have been retired, um, uh, I guess, what, uh, February 2017? Is that when you uh, retired from Marion? That's correct, yep. Uh how has retirement been treating you? Obviously, it's been a while, and I know you're you're pretty busy. Busy, but do you uh, do you ever miss uh, the day to day grind of being a golf course superintendent? No, I feel bad. I don't want to go over the top and gush about how good it is because most of the guys listening are still working. That's right. <laughs> so, but it is. Uh, I don't really miss it. I mean, I gave it everything I had for forty four years, and I left nothing behind. Well, and I think that's uh, for most of the guys out there listening. Uh, would they'd probably want to say the the same thing? And I I think in I don't know maybe this is just a, a, a nature of of the business, but you give so much to your golf course and you you invest so much time and effort in, into the maintenance of that. I think that when people do have the opportunity to step away, like you were you were able to do. Um, I, I think that maybe it's, uh, it's the ability to make a kind of a clean break and try other things is, has, uh, must be refreshing for people. And, and you've been one who's, who's tried a lot of different things. So kind of, kind of recap the folks, what kind of things are you, are you doing? I know you're doing some consulting work now you're working with on link golf. What are, what are, what's holding your interest right now? Well, the one thing I knew I'd miss the most when I left the industry is my peers, my fellow superintendents and, uh, and all the people that helped me out all these years, people like yourself, Rhett, all the vendors. So I wanted to stay in touch with them, but I knew if I didn't do something in the industry, that'd be nearly impossible with everybody's busy schedule. So I started a small company. Uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. Uh, I've always been kind of a minimalist, I have minimal water, minimal chemical guy. So I called it minimalistic agronomic techniques, and the acronym for that is MAT, so I figured I'd always be able to remember the name of my company. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So anyways, uh, I'm actually a brand ambassador for three different companies. One's a really uh, innovative fertilizer company, which is a complete closed loop in the environmental cycle. They take food and any kind of digestive waste, and they turn it into fertilizer, which is safe to be used on any type of food and then uh so consequently you know once once again once that food's consumed the waste from that that's generated can be turned back into fertilizer so it's a complete closed loop name of that company is anuvia i work for a 
pond company that's a biological solution, no chemicals to control algae. And then, uh, and then of course, I work with OnLink, uh, which is a software company that will help uh, with a program that helps consolidate all the data so superintendents can make better decisions in regards to their day-to-day operation and hopefully minimize their inputs to grow better grass. Now, with your your affiliation with OnLink, you were you were also a customer, uh, weren't you? In the early days of that company, you actually uh, used that product at Marion. That's correct. Originally, I, uh, Walton Orley, and I founded that company together, but you know, I didn't do my due diligence and found out that in fact it was a conflict of interest to own a company and then do business at Marion. So, with that being said, I decided to use it instead of own it in a and we were in the early stages of that product, and it was really, really good. But uh, in the two years since then, it has become very robust. And uh, he's getting ready for a, a new version to be released in uh, most likely late spring of this year. I, I, I find that interesting, and, I don't, and I'm not sure if listeners will, will think the same way, but um, uh, you obviously had a long career in golf course management and um I don't want to say many guys are get stuck in their ways or, or, you know, what they first learned when they came into the industry kind of guides them throughout, but, but you've been, you've been one who's, who's been really open to innovation and really OnLink is, is in essence a kind of an on uh, a startup tech company focused in, in golf course management. Um, you talk about some of the other uh, environmental uh, things that you embraced in your career, and now again as as you're in retirement, uh, what was it? What is it about those those companies and, and trying new things and experiment experimenting um, that appeals to you? And and do you feel like others in 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 golf need to in, in as superintendents need to begin exploring some of those new things and 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 try to break out of their boxes a little bit? That'd be great if everybody could. I think there's. Obviously, there's early adopters. I was a poster child for that. I, I think that's possibly in your DNA. I, I uh, like I know Paul Latshaw's that way. Um, and then there's gentlemen that are much more conservative but equally successful. They they let us be the cannon fowler, so to speak. But <laughs> I right. I think uh, you know I don't know that anybody can just do that. I mean, first off, our jobs we don't have any job security, so taking those kind of Uncalculated risk is, uh, I don't know if it's its always prudent, but uh, I think, uh, you know, the first guys in the pool, you know, they, they're the ones that always get them, have the most risk, but uh, certainly innovation and always being able to figure out a solution for a problem that didn't necessarily have a solution was fun and kept me on the leading edge, I would have to say. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious um, when you got to Marion, uh, obviously a, a historic venue, um, one of one of America's great tracks, and uh, a, a very strong membership there. You didn't you really embraced a lot of a lot of innovation there. Um, obviously on link, but but as much with uh, your your maintenance practices and some of the environmental. Uh, things you did, and you spoke about the kind of the minim- minimalistic approach that that you took there. Um, how did that membership uh, w- was there? Was there a learning curve for the membership? Did they when you first started to try things? Uh, 
How did you kind of win over that membership, if you ever did win over the membership? But how did, how did you kind of go about that as you started to introduce those things at what is probably a pretty traditional uh, membership at Marion? Well, I've I've always been a good communicator. I mean, I have the gift to gab. I love people. So uh, for me, it wasn't a stretch. I mean, I had uh, my wife and I had lived in Cleveland for eight years at a great old club called the Country Club. Very, very exclusive, and truth be told, I just got bored out there. So um, I had moved my wife around for so many years that I actually started to work myself into this theory. You know, when I was first starting out in the business, I had no money, and yet I was able to produce unbelievable standards. So I started to revert back to some of those uh, those things that I did in the past, and then I just perfected that, and I had some good people helping educate me along the way, Len Conley, in regards to nutrition with organics, and so then I just started to tweak it and perfect it, and it it just worked wonders at that club, and then when I went to Marion, I just, I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to initiate it (laughs) right off the bat, because simply put, I I was intimidated by the facility, but then you know, doing things the standard way, I wasn't getting the uh, the results that I wanted. So then I started talking first with my Greens chairman and the board of directors about this program that I had initiated in Ohio. And I gave them some, they knew some common members there and they reached out to them. And uh, so that's when I got the red light to uh, do those things. Now, for me, I'm if you give me an inch, I'll take 50 miles. <laughs> So, you know, I pushed things pretty far out to the edge of the abyss at Marion with, you know, successful results, and everything was working really well, and then all of a sudden the dynamics of golf started to change. And the current group of players really, you know, the guys that hired me in the club that I started there with, they were all about firm and fast and didn't really care what it looked like. But in today's world, superintendents have even a greater challenge because they want it firm, fast, and green, which kind of prompted the, uh, well, definitely it prompted the renovation that's currently almost finished by Paul B. Latshaw at Marion right now. So because with 100-year-old push-up greens, that's just really difficult to attain that. Right. I I know that... uh when you initially announced your retirement, there was, uh, and, and you've, uh, as we mentioned, have had a long affiliation with the, the Latshaw family. Um, have, have you been back to see the renovation? Have you, uh, has Paul B. reached out to you for any guidance as, as that project has rolled along? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, I have been back on several occasions and he's done an unbelievable job. And, and I think that was really part of the person that was going to take the reins uh, after I left, it was critical mass that they were comfortable in their own skin, so to speak, and had extensive experience with construction, which is really kind of a lost uh, attribute these days because golf courses aren't being built very much. But Paul had just finished a three-hole layout with Jason Day, so his and he worked for Jack Nicholas, who was always tweaking Muirfield. So. That, along with the fact that he'd already been at Marion, made him the absolute perfect candidate for that position. So I'm positive I couldn't have really offered him anything <laughs> that he didn't already know. Well, well, you mentioned um, 
you know, Paul B., his his father, Paul R. Latshaw, you uh, first uh, worked with at Augusta National, correct? That's right. He he threw me a life ring. I was, uh, the first part of my life, I worked in obscurity in the middle of the mountains because really my focus was hunting and fishing. <laughs> but uh, I found out real quickly that you need to make money. But unfortunately, you know, I didn't pay attention to numerous opportunities during the course of my career. And so I just decided it was one day that I was going to reach out for a big job and I never got an interview and I was totally appalled. So I went up and had a a reality check with Dr. Deutsch and he informed me that I didn't have a pedigree, which at the time I had no clue what that meant. But (laughs) in about five minutes, he got me tuned up. So you know, it's just a perfect time, and I was so lucky to uh, have a wife that was willing to sell everything we owned and start over, and and a person like Paul that was gracious enough to give me a second chance. And I was there for six weeks and got a not got an interview at a uh, really big club, and I turned it down. I got the interview, got the job, and turned it down simply because I knew I didn't know what I thought I knew. But in reality, it was a sad lesson and in the in the reality of our business there's so many great 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 golf course superintendents who never get the opportunity to really succeed it's just it's just the way it works sometimes you know oh absolutely and in 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 your instance you got an opportunity uh to to mentor under one of the one of the best the business has ever ever seen and i know that you have uh, been keen to pass that on as Others, uh, when you were when you were still at Marion and at these other clubs, uh, mentoring and helping new folks in the industry um, get a leg up has been really, really, really important to you. And uh, I, my assumption is that's all just due to the impact that it had on your life. But but why why has mentoring been such a such a key uh, part of, of of your career and what you've tried to pass on to others? Well, unfortunately, you know, life throws you some. Hard inside curves, which incidentally I could never hit in baseball. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, the very first one was my wife and I found out we couldn't have kids. So, and I love, I love working with young people. So this was the perfect uh, environment to be able to, you know, bring people in that are not necessarily sure what they want to do in life or, you know, help them find their right career path. And then those that have already selected uh, being a golf course superintendent, helping them hone their skills so they can be successful for a long career. So it was uh, it was both personal and professional for me. I got a great deal of enjoyment. The other thing is, I mean, it's a team sport. You know, a lot of what I get credit for really was a mutual effort among a lot of good people. If you foster young people to really have open mind and let their ideas flow without being without the fear of being criticized, oh man, it's amazing the things you can come up with in uh, in that kind of an environment. Yeah, that's uh, that's a testament to, to I mean, kind of the, your career there at Marion and some of the successes you had there. Talking again about, about Paul R. Uh, an old Tom Morris Award winner with GCSA a few years back, uh, when he was honored, the um, just the the, the Latshaw family, as as it were, that was on hand to to see him officially receive the award was pretty impressive. I had an opportunity to kind of wander into the uh, the reception before the event, uh, where he actually. Um, 
received the award and to, to call it a who's who in golf course management is is pretty accurate. For someone who was also in that room and saw that all take place, what did it mean for you to, to see him be honored in that way? Well, first off, he's painfully modest. He, he uh, in fact, if anything, he almost shuns any notoriety right. or uh, accolades. So, uh, so a lot of people will say, well, I don't really think he did that much. And yet a lot of people don't really understand or know what he really did. And so for, uh, for those of us that were allowed to see all his innovations become, you know, he's the first, he was the very first guy, for instance, to develop fans in golf courses, you know, but he never, never tried to market right. that technology or right. anything like that. He just saw it as a, solution to a difficult problem and but there's 20 different things that he did that way and he he helped lots and lots of people in their career and and uh he even told i was with him in augusta and augusta was a it was a grind and there was a lot of guys that really struggled and and you know and he'd just bring them in the office and say look you know once you're in my chair it's never going to get easier it's going to get harder you know, you're a young guy, this might be the perfect opportunity to change careers. And I would say 50% of them did and, and still are in touch with him. So, uh, for me, it was great to see him win that award and, and, uh, he's done a lot for the industry, but the industry really doesn't know all he's done. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. And we got our, we had our own, uh, insight into his, uh, uh, just tells reluctance to the spotlight. Obviously, in in GCM, we featured him uh, on the cover of our December issue that year um, as the winner of the Old Tom, and so we had to coordinate things like interviews and and photo shoots. So, if you think he had trouble getting up on stage there, imagine uh, taking him out in a golf course with a photographer and their crew to flash and <laughs> lights and everything. And they turned out fantastic. We were super happy with them, but. I- I'm sure. I'm sure that wasn't one of his favorite days on the uh, on the docket. So uh, I wanted before we wrap up here, Matt. And again, I appreciate your time. And uh, as you and I've talked, we're going to have to make you a regular uh, a regular appearance because we could go on about all sorts of the state of the industry and all sorts of fun stuff. I wanted to uh, kind of give uh, people a, a, an insight. You mentioned hunting and fishing. How much of that are you getting to do now in retirement? Well, hunting season's just getting started. I've gone a little soft, you know. I mean, I uh, I love to go. My wife contends I get. I just take my guns for walks in the woods, and I think she's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, but we do a lot of fishing together, which is nice. We have a nice little home in Florida, and we have a boat. Bass boat's always in the water, twenty yards away. So that's that's always nice. So we do. I do quite a bit of fishing, and. Uh, and it's just always been a pastime that really calms me. I don't know how much more calm I can be. My heart's liable to stop. I'm so chilled, but I'll try it. Well, and, and you're and you're also a, as I understand, a voracious reader, and and you you read a lot. What uh, and I, it, you said early on in your career in a conversation with me earlier um, that you used reading as to kind of decompress from the job. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about that and how you develop such an appetite for, for reading. That really came from my mom and dad, you know, I mean, we were just, everyone in our families are voracious feeder a reader. We just, they didn't really want us sitting in front of the TV. So they, you know, they were very creative and they found out what our interests were and then they fed those interests with books. And so we all read. I'm, I'm probably the most in the family. I just, I just, finish my hundred and first book here of the year and wow so i but i uh 
Yeah, I mean, I I remember one time distinctly. It was uh, we were going through a bankruptcy at a project where I had grown it in and stayed to uh, maintain it. We ran out of money and the whole place went under. It was a dark time in my life. And Mitchner just came out with Centennial. I sat down on a Saturday evening and I got up on a on Sunday evening and I finished eleven hundred books and I, or eleven hundred pages and I was ready to roll. Wow. So, so I read for enjoyment, not necessarily education. I do read twelve magazines, I guess, every month. But do you? Uh, uh, is there a is there a particular genre of book that you enjoy? A particular author that that's your favorite? Oh, if I get it onto an author, I just burn right through them, like Stephen King or C.J. Hooper or Mark Dotson or you know. I mean, if they they're all espionage adventure, you know, type. Who done it? Right. You know, trying to figure out. Some of them, you got to rush to the end. You can't stand all the junk in the middle. I, <laughs> sure. I've speed. I've taken Evelyn Rudd's speed reading twice, which has its advantages and disadvantages. But you can really burn through some books. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> how, that's how you get to a hundred and one by uh, by mid October in in, in that's a year. Right. Before I let you go, one story. I was doing um, I was doing some research uh, in advance of this interview. Just kind of refreshing myself, and I reread the uh, preview story that we ran. Uh, Howard Richman wrote, uh, appeared in our uh, June 2013 uh, issue, right before the U.S. Open. And it was just kind of re- scanning through it, and I stumbled upon a story that I had forgotten um, when he when he, I remember I remembered it when he originally wrote it, but hadn't gone back to it. And so you're going to have to tell the listeners, is it true that you wrecked a motorcycle? Uh, was, was it your wedding night that this happened? Yeah, I did. I <laughs> I was creative all my life. You know, maybe that's my parents' fault for letting me read so much. But, uh, oh, yeah, I was, uh, as I tell my, you know, I actually overheard my wife tell her friends one time. He was a buck and bronco, and he threw me off about 100 times, but I tamed him. <laughs> So, yeah, we were wild kids when we were younger and and uh we had a we had a major party and I got a little wound up when my buddies came in in their motorcycles and we had a a wheelie challenge and and I lost. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, you did not win. The <laughs> I did not win that that contest. Yep. Well, she must really, really care for you to spend her wedding night in an uh, emergency room getting checked out for that. That's an off. I'd be interested to hear her tell that story, huh? Well, you know, she's got she's really got a great sense of humor. I mean, she's funny, funny. And somebody asked her, you know, what was that like? She said, "I've never stayed in a cleaner room." <laughs> 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 well, that's that, that is that is a great way to put a positive spin on things with with that. So. Well, listen, Matt, I appreciate you taking the, the time to uh, to chat with us here. Uh, we're going to have to do it again. I think uh, uh, we can dive into maybe next time some of the issues of the day. I, as, you, as you told everyone earlier, you're still really involved in the industry, and I I think you'd have some some awesome perspective on on the kind of the state of the golf course management industry now. Uh, but for now, I will uh, not keep you any further from the uh, from the the fishing line or your next book or whatever. And I'll just thank you for joining us, and we will do it again real soon. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt.
Well, that about wraps it up for another episode of the GCSA podcast. I want to thank our guest today, Leanne Cooper with GCSAA. I want to thank Steve Keeley, the Certified Golf Course Superintendent at Glendale Country Club in Bellevue, Washington. I want to thank Tim Krieger, the Executive Director of the Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association. And as always, our friend Matt Schaefer for joining us. Also, big thanks, shout out to podcast producer Evan Bissell. Uh, the music you're hearing on this podcast is... From his creative mind, you can find more from Evan by going to Spotify and searching Ebis. That's E-B-Y-S. And I want to also thank all our listeners out there. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm going to drill that into your head as you listen to this podcast. It really does help us when you do this. And please share uh, this podcast with any coworkers, colleagues, and friends. The more that listen, the better it is for all of us. Uh, shout out to our sponsors for this episode, which is the Golf Industry Show. The 2019 version is off to San Diego February 2nd through the 7th. Registration is now open, so get yourself signed up to head to Southern California. All the information is at golfindustryshow.com. Also want to uh, thank and make you aware of the GCSA Disaster Relief Fund, which is available for GCSA members who may have suffered personal loss because of a natural disaster. There are resources and funds available to you. So please head over to GCSA.org slash about GCSAA slash GCSAA Disaster Relief Fund. There are hyphens between about GCSAA and GCSA Disaster Relief Fund. You can get all the information about how to apply and how to contribute to that fund right there. So we will be back next month with another episode of the GCSA podcast. Until then, for our producer, Evan Bissell, for everyone at GCSA headquarters in Lawrence, and the nine members of the GCSAA National Board of Directors, I'm Scott Hollister. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you next time on the GCSAA podcast. 